Okay. Thanks, everybody, for coming in, uh, bearing with our uh, technical details. Um, my name is Jessamine West, and as the youngest person in this group, I've been elected to go first. Um, I also have a somewhat outsider status. I'm a librarian in rural Vermont. Um, I work with uh, teeny tiny libraries in Orange County. And so the concept of university, um, even though I, I went to college, uh, exists for me as a more of an abstract construct. So I'm really interested in talking about it with people who uh, work on it in the concrete, I guess. Um, I do a lot of work with technology personally. This is my little intro, and then everybody will intro themselves and we'll talk about what we're going to do today. Um, I work with a bunch of tiny libraries, and I do a lot of technology work. And the stuff that we're doing, um, after coming to the opening session where there's a PowerPoint or whatever, keynote presentation and a back channel, and we're on chat, and people are talking about it on Twitter, and we're still working on getting broadband where I, where I live. I have broadband in my town. Um, I work with seven or eight small libraries that um, most of which have broadband at their library and don't have much broadband in their community. And so there's a trickle-down effect with a lot of this technology that we're talking about where as more people get it, it becomes more ubiquitous and eventually we get it. But some of the libraries that I'm working in, you know, they have one computer for everybody or they have <coughs> dial-up and they share it on a network. And so my particular personal interest in a lot of this uh, university thing is universities with libraries making materials more open so that little libraries like the ones that I work with get more access to more information at a lower cost both um, sort of simplification wise but also uh, seriously literally money money wise like for me in the work that I do uh, a lot of this comes down to cash and so that's one of the things that I'm interested in as far as the openness topic goes. I also run a library blog called librarian.net where I talk about techie issues and I also help run the uh, big community weblog metafilter.com where I run the part of the site that's called Ask Metafilter which is kind of an online social space. Metafilter is a big group blog, it's got 50,000 people, something like that. But we have a part of the site where members can ask other members questions and other members can answer them and those members aren't librarians or some of them are, I am but a lot of them aren't and it's an interesting social space where personal needs are being met in a way that's outside the, the box that is the, the library and the university but also outside the box that is physical space and that kind of interests me. I'm not super into um, literal big virtual spaces, Second Life and whatnot. I haven't spent a lot of time there. I'm interested uh, in people that have but from my personal perspective, I'm mostly interested in uh, trickle-down economies and how they affect people on the really far side of the digital divide issue, which uh, I think still exists sort of in a big, in a big way. So we'll introduce uh, the other two facilitators. We're going to go over sort of what the ground rules are. We've got the list of questions. If anybody hasn't seen the questions, both that are on the website and that are um, on the wiki, uh, and you have a network connection, I encourage you to take a look at them. We'll be <coughs> probably putting them up on the big screen at some point. And then we're going to talk about what we think we can actually do. And in our dream world, we're going to walk out the door with some ideas, not just in addition to what we'd like, the sense that everybody's sort of had something to say. And I think a lot of times people that are comfortable speaking wind up doing a lot of speaking and people that aren't comfortable speaking sort of don't. And I would encourage people who don't think they're comfortable speaking to like make some little auction 
hand sign finger wave and we can direct lots of attention towards you uh, and, and hear what you have to say because otherwise we're all just talking to ourselves and I could talk forever but I'm tired of listening to myself talk. So with that, this is uh, David Weinberger, my co-facilitator. Hi, I'm David Weinberger. I'm at Hello at the Center and uh, at the Berkman Center. Um, I, I am I am actually an outsider. Well, I am. I'm not a librarian. I, I, you know, I don't know anything about library science. Sorry. Um, I have an interest, although I'm finding for interest, I have an interest in how we organize information once it's off paper, as uh, probably everybody here does. So, thanks. So, <clears throat> I'm uh, Kathy Norton, and I'm the uh, director of the Marine Biological Laboratory of the Total Oceanographic Institution Library, what's all the longest title for a library. And uh, I also run the IT department at, uh, at the MBL. And we have, uh, we're on a tiny spit of land down there, so we've always been, as they call it, geographically deprived. So we have had to be uh, at the forefront of this electronic era so that we can, you know, get everything there. We have ships that go out to sea. We have uh, lots of data that we collect. We collaborate now with most of the data centers around the world, and we're trying to do some digital preservation there with data. And we try to get scientists around the world to use the same kinds of metadata. Uh, there's no use in having 20 different uh, sites for collecting lat long and things like that. So <clears throat> we're working on those kinds of projects. But the biggest project that we've been working on for the last uh, 10 years is something called UBio. We ran websites for a very long time and one day we get a phone call from someone saying I can't find anything on your website on bluefish. I mean, you know, we do fish. We do people in the sea. We do all of that. No bluefish. Of course we had thousands of things on bluefish. But they were looking for the scientific name of bluefish, Homotoma saltatrix. And we had Homotoma saltator, which up until 1998 you know, was the right name. But the name had changed. So what do you do? Do you go in and you change all of the, uh, the places that you have it? Or do you put directionals? Or do you kill yourself with a website doing these kinds of things? And we have this very bright penny who works for us named David Remsen who said, everybody's always looking for the name of these species. Everybody needs to know what it was called. And the names change over time. He said, why don't we create a taxonomic name server? And so we did that. We created a taxonomic name server, mainly we have about 10 million names of species in there, and the name changes, and we've been reconciling the names over time. Bluefish itself has 17 scientific names. It has 48 common names. And so when you now search for that bluefish and you come to our site, you're actually searching for all of those names and we will give you the results. So we have been working on that for quite a while thanks to the Mellon Foundation. And then uh, something happened just last year. Excuse me. Yeah. Sorry, is it UBio or YOUBio? You. UBio. <laughs> it's the Universal Biological Indexer and Organizer, UBio.org. And we've created lots and lots of things. And one of the biggest things was in scanning all the literature, especially when you're talking about biological literature, when you scan it all, you're actually scanning the text. And when you go to look for it, 
you can't find anything unless you know those names. The American Museum of Natural History scanned a whole bunch of things about birds, and no one could find anything, because the book was published in 1956, and about 90% of those birds' names, birds of the Belgian Congo, had changed in that time. So if you run it through the taxonomic name survey, you found everything. You found things you never were looking for. And if you were looking for a fly, you know, uh, like diptera, a fly, a real fly, they were in that book, but you never would have found it because the word fly with birds, there'd be zillions of hits. So these are the kinds of things, these are the problems that we've been working on. And in the meantime, there was a marvelous thing that happened. <coughs> There's a man here at Harvard called Dr. E.O. Wilson, Edward Wilson, and he received the TED Prize this year, and he got up and he said what he would really want as a dream gift from this organization was a species page for each, a web page for each species. And it's called the Encyclopedia of Life. It has begun. We have funding from some wonderful foundations, the MacArthur Foundation and the Sloan Foundation. There are 10 museum libraries. There are five major institutions involved in this right now. And we're going to make this dream happen. We are going to create an Encyclopedia of Life with a species page for each, a web page for each species. And that's what we're going to do. And libraries are changing. And Dr. Wilson is actually here. Yay, Dr. Wilson, for wishing for that. <laughs> uh, so that's what we're doing. Super. Super. I'm the youngest member of oh, the facilitator like panel. Um, so David's brought up the <laughs> questions that we took off the uh, website, and I'm not really prepared to stand up here and uh, keep talking, but essentially the whole um, walking out the door, what we want is sort of what's on, what's on the board, two sets of wish lists and maybe a set of steps. So wish list number one would be what can university and what's the concept or the model for um, university and doing for libraries? I kind of don't like the libraries of the future term. I feel like we talk about it a lot and it all turns into rocket cars and, and jetpacks. And I mean, we're all working in libraries. I mean, well, quick show of hands. Librarians? Sort of a left brain, right brain thing. More on that side. That's interesting. Um, but I mean, we're all working in or with, I assume. Is there anybody who's like so unaffiliated with libraries, never heard of a library, doesn't use the library? <laughs> well, sometimes, I mean, in my universe, like there's a lot of people where we still have to explain why the library. And, and I find that's a very different perspective sometimes than what the library or how, how the library. And, um, you know, I feel like we're all working with or affiliated with libraries of the future that are going to libraries that are going to become the libraries of the future. Um, my particular interest area, besides what I've already said, is the, the digital library, is it a real library concept? We're seeing a lot of um, money going into digital initiatives, which I find fascinating and really interesting, and they put a lot of really great stuff online, and yet we're still seeing the library as box model, which is very, very important to lots and lots of people, uh, including you know people at university. Um, I'm not sure if I totally understand the university versus the university. Uh, I'm not sure I entirely understand it either, except I think it's an attempt to uh, say, A, not just Harvard, not and B, university. that there is a, we should think of a uh, 
of it as an institution, the way that we th we can talk about the government or yeah. you know, that it transcends and should have some uh, sense and meaning as an entity itself. Yeah. Is, is that is that your that's understanding? Your, that's your take. Just like government, talk about government. What's government? Yeah. University. It seems like it's about university ness too, in a sense. I mean, how 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 do people connect in universities? What are the, what makes those connections happen? How is that universe a lot? <coughs> and not just yes, any one exactly. school in particular. Okay, good. Um, so the idea of you know university and what they can do and how they can use their libraries as their agent or how their libraries can use them as their agent to do whatever it is that our work is, which I think is a really interesting question personally. Uh, did you have anything to add to that specifically, David? No, although I, I sort of feel a need to come clean mm -hmm. when you ask who uses a library. I actually hardly ever use a library. I don't feel good about this. I, I wrote a, a book that uh, took me either three years or a year and a half, depending on how you count. And I, I really uh, am comfortable saying this, but I, I have access to the Harvard libraries, you know, one of the great systems. I, I went in maybe three or four times, only when I really had to. Well, that's the building. Do you use JSTOR? No. Do you use online databases at all? Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I don't, didn't use uh, Harvard's online facility hardly at all because it's uh, really difficult to use. I'm sorry. It's just easier to use other alternatives. What do you God. use? Well, I think they should get rid of every OPAC that is out there anyway. Does everybody know what OPAC means? Online Public Access Catalog is some of our little jargon. Jargon. Online public access catalog, it basically is card catalog. Yeah. But it's it's the software interface to the data that tells you either where a book is or where your content oh, is. Brilliantly designed. Yeah. Every last <laughs> one of them. Awful. Uh, which is an interesting which is an interesting topic in and of itself. In and of itself. So yeah, up an interesting point. He said he hasn't used the library that often, but when he had to use it, it was there. Yeah. So it reminds me of the fire department. Right. Yes. You can only give it to the fire department even though you don't have that many fires. It also means that when I used it, I got a lot of value out of it. Right. And the other thing is that I bet you use a lot of uh, services that a library like or maybe should be in a library. Yes. So I, will I, I do. I think that's a good it's, jumping off point. Right. Yeah, it's possible that you're actually using a lot of library yeah. resources, but you don't know that it's the libraries that are managing those because um, Online, you know, once you're online, um, especially if you're getting to scholarly journals because you have a Harvard ID and PIN, the libraries are managing all of that. Um, so I don't know whether some of what you're getting to you're actually using your Harvard access to get to. In my case, actually not. Okay. But that's irrelevant. I don't want to get stuck on me as a data point. You know. Do you have access to a better <laughs> system? Yeah, Is that what you're it's saying? a good example of, you know, Getting in for getting in from people need information, and if you're a, an example of someone who's getting it without the libraries, um, you know it's something we want to look at. Where are you getting it from, and, and what kind of information are you after that the libraries are not making available to you? And you librarian? Yes. Where do you work at? Um, the Office for Information Systems at Harvard, Harvard University Library. Cool. I think, I think the question of why library is not a done deal at all. I mean, I work in this library right here, and we're losing space, we're losing money, and um, this is a major research institution. Um, and 
I don't know why he's not using our service. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd, be, I'd be happy to go through it in great detail, but I, I yeah. it's, uh, probably not here, just because it's um, yeah. not addressing that. I'd be curious to know why the people who aren't librarians are here. Okay. How many people what? Are librarians? We're not librarians. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a student at the college, and I, I guess I use the library, and I, I like going there. And I'm also I'm going to be a research assistant at the Berkeley Center this summer, so I figured this would probably be something I'd like to attend. And um, I mean, there are things that, that the library could improve, but it's funny. Most of the time I go there, I, I don't know if I use its its print resources. It's, I, I play, I'll pick up a book for class to read if, I, if it's at the library. A lot of times I go there to study. I think a lot of a lot of students at the college do that. And I certainly use the, you know the online features to search journals and stuff like that a lot. Um, <coughs> Has library use gone up or down in the past, you know, five years? Those are things that I'm wondering. Public um, library use is way up. Um, I have. I run. I'm biased in science, geology, biomedical, and so uh, <clears throat> there are. I mean, to me, scientists, doctors, people in the allied health field, geologists. Library, library resources, journals are a research arm. I mean, they have to use those kinds of uh, resources, and those resources are still tied up in a couple of those questions that are being published by publishers who charge a lot of money for, for their things. And so they still use the library through electronic uh, devices. However, last year, um, I was reorganizing well, because UBio is getting so big and we now have this big informatics program going on in the library. And I looked at my statistics of book circulation. Now books are different than journals. I mean my people use journals all the time. Books are really good. We like books. You know, books are friends. And uh, over the weekend, I called a moving company and moved every single book off campus, every single book off campus to a, uh, you know, storage area that you could get out. Uh, no one noticed. Until there's a fire. But I'm personally No one noticed. Fire. No one noticed <laughs> until they wanted something. Right. And then it was, we'll get it for you. And we had people that ran back and forth. I mean, the off-campus storage was only seven miles away. And they brought it back. Did you say real quick? I'll just kind of play off her point about no one notices what's on there. I have an IT background, <coughs> so I'm that guy that and all the hard work we put in every day where things work smoothly, we don't hear from you, but That's when right. bad happens, then we're visible all of a sudden. So, <laughs> so what's happening where we're kind of reducing the face-to-face in-person access that your customers or end users are having with the librarians. They're sitting at home, they're still using your products to be online and stuff. Um, how does that, what does that do to your ability to then go, go and ask for more resources and stuff when that connection to librarians is a little bit more attenuated? Is that, is that an issue that, that we're thinking about? Or? I think at the university level, when you have students, that, that's a real issue, that there is a service component. But I will tell you that in corporate America, you're not going to find any libraries left, I don't believe, because the people who are managing, the people who are managing the electronic access 
are the purchasing departments. They can buy from Elsevier, and they can buy from EBSCO just as well as the librarian can buy. Give me the best deal, I'll make it domain open, and it's done. And so there are some issues about libraries changing uh, if they're really going to survive. And, and I will tell you that I really think if you don't get into that knowledge management informatics area, you're going to have trouble. So that's the corporate perspective. Well, what about the what about the community libraries, the university libraries? I mean, if the kids are staying or the kids, adults are staying at home and accessing, you know, for your catalogs there, and you're you're losing that face-to-face -face interaction with librarians. Is, is it, I think play? small town libraries and, and and I will public libraries. If they close them, it's a crime against humanity. <laughs> Can we? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Just a I wanted to take a few more responses, and then I want to actually set up a little bit of time block so that we can talk about these in a slightly more structured manner. So, uh, if you wanted to say what? Yeah, go back to your question of people who aren't librarians. Why are they here? Mm -hmm. Oh, who are you, by the way? Uh, I'm Scott Bradner, University of Technology Security Officer here at Harvard. Um, my mother was a librarian. That's point one. Second point is that I was at the Techie at Harvard. I've been on, on two different panels about automating the library at Harvard. One about 15 years ago, one about five years ago. Uh, one about 15 years ago uh, was, can we make an electronic catalog and make it public? It was very hard. The answer was no. It was years after that to actually, not that we could make an electronic catalog, but making it public was hard because it was a feeling that uh, the university couldn't deal with people in Beijing asking questions on what they were confused about on the library. The one uh, five years ago was very interesting because it was after we had you know, gone very public with a catalog and lots of online materials, etc. But we had a student, a Harvard student, on that panel, which was the FASI uh, Library Committee. And a Harvard student on that panel who said, quote, if it's not online, it doesn't exist. <laughs> this is Harvard with the best libraries and the best library system in the world, and yet if it's not online, it doesn't exist. A primary thrust of that second panel, the second group, was to look into how to open up the library catalog to Google, to Google being a generic term rather than a specific one. Uh, but how can we make the catalog as part of the experience that people are using. Uh, David said he doesn't use the library. Well, but that's not true. He uses the library of the internet all the time. All of us do that. We use it through Google, we use it through Yahoo, or whatever. But what's happened is that's not the university library community and the small town library community. My mother was in the library in the small town. Isn't part of that internet library. So can we talk about time management really briefly? I know everybody has a bunch to say, but I feel a certain amount of pressure to have some sort of agenda as much as I just like to sit around and talk to everybody here uh, for the next uh, hour and 15 minutes. So uh, I'm not That's really- That's why we made her. <laughs> because I don't know any of y'all. Um, but I'm a really bad taskmaster as far as time goes. But I do know we have until about 1245. Uh, is that right? Yes. Somebody's, somebody's it's true. 
It's yeah. true. And it's about 11.30 now, and I feel like we've uh, thrown out a bunch of uh, decent ideas. You probably have an idea of who the three of us are and why we're standing in the front of the room. I've written down a couple other things that people talked about. I'm really interested in the questions that were up on the wiki, uh, you know, some extra credit for people who got in a little earlier, um, and some of the stuff that was bumped up on the website. But I'm also interested in just the topic ideas that we've been throwing around already. And so I guess I would like to open up uh, either to my co-facilitators or uh, anyone else in the room who's a better time manager than I am. I figure by about 12.30 we should start writing things down on a list that Dave Weinberger is going to present at the end of the day. And Can we just jump was, to two because we kind of did that one this morning. Number one will be coming more open, threatened standing of the university. Can we go down? I'm not sure what numbers you're referring to. Over here, the the letters. I mean, the questions. Oh, oh, becoming oh. more open, threatened the standing of the university. We kind of did that. I'm going to stop taking public notes because a word sucks. I can't get. I don't have the outliner set up properly. You don't want to watch me do that. B. It's of little value. C. I'd rather blog it. Uh, and I'll be writing some stuff down on the chalkboard, and uh, people yeah, with their own typing and machines and D, it's just to use them. So. so 12.30, I figure we need to wrap up and start filling in board number three over here. But before that, we've got about an hour. I'd like it to be somewhat constructive. I'd like to listen to me less and you guys more. Uh, this is referring to our time conundrum. Okay. Yeah. I actually have one question I haven't heard it brought up here, except tax on this newspaper bio, is uh, classification schemes. As we get a, a plethora of information mm -hmm. on content, put on the net from all sources. How do people classify what they write? How do you find uh, my subject matter in a blog? Uh, I think the answer to it is I've been hearing is in tags, but you know, but if there were hypothetically a, a thesaurus uh, from which you could say this is associated with a particular way now, a little different way of thinking because it's, it's hierarchical rather than maybe a network model to look up something by the category book. I, I was in here primarily, I'm not a librarian, I'm, an ex-missile systems engineer went to IT and then to web development for years at Raytheon, which, by the way, has pretty good libraries because we need them. Mm -hmm. uh, but classification schemes, classifications even not just for libraries, but for uh, contributors as a whole. The same way, for example, uh, style tags and delicious are used. What of the future of that, how does that affect librarians, which are great people, by the way. David, you might want to say something about that. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to second the yeah. motion that, it, that um, maybe phrase the question, is there something that uh, university libraries and librarians can do? Um, um, uh, with, and this is sort of within and outside, I don't know where it goes, uh, in, to help um, oh, uh, address the problem that classification schemes have in the past addressed quite well. And that apparently, you know, classification, uh, this, I'll put this forward, I don't think it's controversial. If it is, you'll push back. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it's hard to imagine a classification scheme now um, being extensive and precise and uh, accepted enough that it would keep up with the flow of stuff on the web and address the various ways of thinking about uh, things and dividing up the world. Our classification is top down, as you see. Um, it, yes, or even when it's unitary which I think is the real issue, which is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in, in what UBIO is doing in yeah. coordination with the, especially in coordination with the new uh, Encyclopedia Life um, 
stuff. So, so that was sort of in the form of a question: um, Are there is there pushback on the general notion that you know top-down classification schemes are probably not proposing a new one is probably not the right way to go if we want to help people uh, find stuff? I would agree to an extent. I, I, I wouldn't think so much it's a matter that it's impossible or that it's you know theoretically not doable. It's just it's much a matter of just the amount of stuff out there. I mean, one of the things that we really have a luxury when we talk about our collections as collections, be they print or electronic things that we've actually you know, bought and paid for or rented and paid for, is that they're finite. You know, I, I, I could have a backlog of tech services. But I, mean, I know that you know, if I do enough catalog resetting, you know, if I do enough you know, better workflow adjustments to my copy catalog, there is at least a chance that it will catch up with it. You know, I think it's really interesting to look at what happened with Yahoo at the very beginning. And it was this nice, elegant little structure where there was all this stuff and they were going out there, putting in nice little categories. And eventually it broke down, not because so much the very notion of a nice, elegant little structure is ridiculous, but there, there was just too much stuff. And I think in terms of the search algorithm, that wasn't so much this ideological thing that was the only way to do it, but I mean, there literally weren't enough people. There weren't enough people you could throw at the problem. Do you think that's what broke Yahoo, though? I think to a large extent, yes. If you look at the Moz directory project, I mean, is that broken now? Do we have? Is it so, used much? Yeah, I think it's a really neat idea. It's not used. So Moz and, and, and Yahoo both had similar ideas, and I think they both died in one way. Did you have? I think you need Moz, and we can't get away from classification systems that are constructed by. I'm lucky enough to work at Harvard, where we have catalogs for catalogers who are specialists. I'm a reference. Librarian. Yeah, um, and I, I rely on the subject catalog in the house. Um, it helps you get into, uh, you have to have keyword searching, which is Googling, and you have to have a classification scheme that helps you get into those. There are so many ways of expressing an idea that if, you, if you're limited to one, you're not gonna find the others, but working through a classification scheme can help you find alternative expressions, um, I, I think they're very important, and I don't think you can classify the web, but you've got to have something on the web available on the <coughs> library catalogs that are carefully constructed um, that help you make sense of the web. And is Hollis open to Google? Oh, oh yeah. open to Google? Um, ask somebody else. How is it open? Well, and the records even aren't, aren't there. It's I think that, you know, I deal with taxonomists. There are truly only 6,000 of these people left in the world. They are the Rodney Dangerfield of science. They get no respect. There are not a lot of them. It is not a sexy science to go into. They work in museums and they sit in the woods looking at a beetle all day long. So there are not a lot of them. Beetles. Beetles, the tons of beetles in the world and classify them. Just in our little project, we have 80 different classifications. We've postponed, as David would say, we've postponed making Uber classification that everyone would have to use. Now, for us, that's okay. That's an okay kind of classification. We don't have to, you know, say you have to use mine, you can use his, you can use that, oh, he's a lumper, he's a splitter. But if you get into something that's very serious, like medicine, you might want to deal with a real classification. And maybe Alexa McCray might want to say something about that. <laughs> um, so as, as Kat said, I'm Alexa McCray. I uh, worked for many years at the National Institutes of Health 
um, on a classification system uh, called the Unified Medical Language System. And that was uh, essentially um, a, uh, a metathesaurus of multiple existing thesauri. So that, in other words, people have spent a lot of effort on creating um, different thesauri with different taxonomies, different classifications for lots of different purposes. So in medicine, those of you who've ever gone to a, a doctor or a hospital and got, you've gotten a discharge sheet, usually a pink sheet or something like that, uh, there's a diagnosis code, there's just a number there, and you may sometimes wonder what that number means, but that's your diagnosis, and that's called the ICD code, the International Classification of Diseases, and all billing is dependent on that code. There's also another one called the current procedural um, uh, uh, terminology, which is for the procedures. Again, that's for billing. So that's a necessary uh, coding system that you have to have for financial reasons. Now, what people are working on today is on interoperable and comparable uh, hospital record systems. So as soon as you start moving from you know, published articles, let's say, into data and wanting to do data sharing, you have to have some kind of classification system. We generally call them ontology, but that's just a new fancy name for, for what people have been doing for a long time. And so our approach has been not to create an uber classification, as you were just saying, but rather to interlink these various uh, classifications so that they can interoperate. Uh, Kathy gave some great examples about synonymy, so the same, you know, multiple ways of expressing the same concept. But what wasn't mentioned yet is the power of hierarchies and the power of networks. So if you wanted to do a search on all fish, which I wouldn't recommend, but let's say you wanted to, um, you would not find that because any given article or document would not be, would not be um, indexed as the word fish. It would be bluefish or one of these Latin terms or whatever it is. So you need to be able to aggregate and go up the tree, so to speak, go up the a hierarchy or go across a network. So I, I agree. I think that there's a place where I may disagree with you is whether this has to be a manual process. Oh, um, so that in other words, there, there, there are methods now whereby one can mine literature, mine data, and begin to create ontologies and thesauri semi-automatically. Humans are still great when you're in the loop, and they, they rationalize these, uh, these taxonomies. So. Well, and what's the stick behind that, I think, sort of interests me. Like you said, in medicine, one of the very important reasons that you need to have a really useful classification, and the law, I think, is one of the other examples, is that, you know, real things ride on it. People's well, lives. the SARS, the SARS epidemic is a good example. Right. Because if, you know, if there, people are showing up in hospitals and they have a certain kind of disease, if everybody's talking about it in a different way, you'll never be able to find out that all these people really have more or less the same thing. But it's clear that that's mission critical, and then I think the next question becomes, is scholarship mission critical? I know in the public library the idea of mission critical is a little silly, right? Like if somebody shows up and they're like, I really want this, we don't take maybe the public's information need that's kind of random as much as the doctor's information need that's like, you know, lives are in the balance. What about that patient who's like? Oh, I know, I know. And that for me, that's really interesting because your classification scheme becomes forced because it's essential as opposed to other classification schemes like our broad, you know, big wide Google net of, of information and the essentiality. I mean, you talk about this a lot, about the um, good enough. Uh, 
<laughs> Did you not want me to bring it up? Oh, no, it's fine. I just, I, I'm just deeply ashamed. Um, <laughs> so, one of the things that, um, that I like about the, the UBIO approach and also the knitting together of oncology. UMLS, it's called. Unified Medical System. But the broader point that you're making that there is value, as, and you as well, there's, absolutely there's value in, in taxonomies and hierarchical taxonomies and ontological ones that don't really have hierarchies where messier sorts of multiple relationships can be mapped instead of a single uh, frame of taxonomies. The inheritance of property through taxonomies is crucial. All that's great. We now have the ability to have as many of these as we want. You have 60 different taxonomies uh, classifications in, in UBIO, so we don't have to have the argument anymore about where does the book get shelved, we have to pick one. We, so as a wish list uh, thing to talk about or, or possible um, a uh, project for libraries to undertake is uh, just raising, uh, you know, saying what you're saying. Is is there a role for libraries in a formal, in some to some degree of formality of providing uh, the ability to traverse multiple taxonomies, ontologies, classifications, um, which is a deeply difficult and technical thing to do, requires all the interlinking. Is that something that universities are in a specially good position to do, and the especially good position for the market to, that is for the internet, to take this, take these classifications up? Mm -hmm. Right, go. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a librarian. I work with Henry Jacobs at MIT on the New Literacies Project. Um, increasingly, people who are trying to innovate in areas of learning are going to libraries. Um, Foundation, Hewlett, et cetera, we're all giving tons and tons of money to look at libraries of sites of learning. Um, we're looking to innovate there, and we can't do it in K-12 public schools. Um, so it's not just libraries, it's also after-school programs, et cetera, but I'm really interested in folks in the room who are working in library education, innovative curriculum in libraries, et cetera. That's all I just wanted to look at that. that one right there. There's a couple things that seem to be brought up here. One is the kind of finite versus infinite, and it's also related, I think, to the fact that all libraries aren't the same. They don't hold the same materials. They have different collections, and a lot of the expertise is around those collections as opposed to the more generic, kind of more common, you know, bestseller type stuff that everybody has. Mm -hmm. And that there's always, I think, going to be a role for libraries to specialize in things and to be able to create taxonomies of that and organize that in ways and add value to just the full text that you might glean from scanning that book or kind of the um, somewhat considered tagging of some sort that might happen with that. So there's, there's that kind of, I think, tension there between the, uh, the collections and kind of the general stuff. But there's also, um, it's related to the Google, the Google book scanning project, which is a back conversion problem versus the more digital issue, which is the more infinite thing where everything is being generated all the time now, that they don't have time to completely change. Um, and the back conversion thing to me is really just a money issue. I mean, it's basically we should we should digitize everything that's in hardware special collections, um, put it online, make it available for the world. It's, it's a question of who's going to pay for it and what the priority is. You know, some small fraction of the hardware endowment can be used to do that if someone decided they want to do it. At least they have copyrights. And hopefully, uh, something, a very good discussion, others will deal with some of these other issues. Well, and if you had an infinite amount of money, you would still have huge hurdles to getting content available freely, whatever freely would mean. Yeah, but Harvard could make all of its materials available, at least the, the printed materials that they have rights to. Um, 
And then it's then it's maybe accessible to the it's finer points to that. You know, the funny thing we talk about digitization is that, I mean, it's the same problem that archives face. And I did a, a, a bunch of work on film and sound archive. Um, and, you know, archives, if they could digitize everything, could solve preservation problems and you wouldn't have to cane the 35 mil film because it'd all be digital. But then there's a space issue. I think that this discussion started with what, you, what, what the library, and that seemed to be where we're going, but I wonder whether what we really need to be talking about is what is the purpose of the library itself, rather than what, you know, how do we transform what a library might be. We need to come back, I think, to talk about what is a, the, the library itself and what role does it play, because all of this discussion about universal coding things and meta something or other, whether we should plug OPACs into Google and whatever, is all questions about information access, which seems to be a transition in the way that we think of libraries, but not the way that we think of library science. So library science seems to have moved, and I'm not a librarian, I'm a postdoc, I run a research project at MIT, um, and I work on television. Um, but library science seems to be a little more open to questions about information systems management than libraries are. And I think that we're getting to this point because of the openness, because of the access stuff, and because of everything we heard this morning about digital natives, and I won't talk about how crap all the problem the digital native is, but whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's ultimately about an access to information question. And so I think the way, well, actually I'd like to ask whether we can perhaps push this away from what, what the library needs to be, to move towards what is the purpose of what role, what service does the library institution serve. And are, are the librarians in the room, sorry, shut up in one second, are the librarians in the room comfortable with the institution of the library moving to one that provides access to information rather than a repository for what we want. And if they are comfortable with that, is that a shift and how do we think that through? It's a shift back there. I am a librarian. I'm at MIT. I'm probably not senior. I use the library. I use the library. This is a general. The engineering library is under the dome. It's the most beautiful building in the entire place. So, um, I, I think that librarians have, have posed this question of whether access is indeed uh, the, the heart of our mission and the heart of our, of our future. And uh, there's certainly no question that the network creates modes of access that transform what libraries can provide, but it also transforms what everybody else can provide. So, I, I don't think it's the answer to what libraries are these days. And I would say that you know, where I kind of take my um, navigation from is, in fact, the reason I'm here is the, the notion of the university. The university is um, about knowledge. It's also about learning. Um, knowledge is global, okay? So when you're in the university, you're participating in the universal knowledge system. But it's also local because learning is local. And I think the library is part of that interface. The library is, is, in fact, not a part from the university, but it is a part of that interface between the university knowledge and, and the local learning. So in answer to your, uh, just responding to your comment earlier, uh, librarians, especially universities, are all over the, the question of learning and the tools that are needed not only to access the information, but to actually use it save time to talk about what are the urgent, you know, mm -hmm. what's the urgency behind this issue. And for all of us, time is, is, is the urgent driver. Usually we need to go over the scholars, 
saves us time. But it can be a false savings if the information that you need was not there and it would have saved you weeks, you know, not, not minutes, but weeks or perhaps months. So I think a lot of what we're trying to do is to help people with um, not only access the information, but learn how to navigate in this, in this very um, transparent assessment. You know, I'd like to, like to point out also in the question, what is a library, that an important, crucial role, central role that libraries play is not only providing access, not only serving as a kind of cathedral of knowledge, but also playing a fundamental role that's curatorial in nature, that has to do with preserving stuff that people value. And that includes the, the connections among those things, not only the objects themselves, but how, how they represent, um, how they're sort of artifacts of conversation, of frozen conversation. And so there's, there's an enormous amount of material in the university library, in the university library, broadly considered, that, um, that, that doesn't necessarily rise to the surface of access, that isn't necessarily about what one can or cannot Google at present, um, but is about, first of all, physical preservation. But, but then how do, we, how do we make those things and the connections among them accessible to people? And how, do we, and how do we curate what's going on right now? How do we curate these connections that intertwine within the library and, and, and beyond? But when you say, I just, what's the manifestation of the connections? I just want to make sure I'm understanding. Right. Well, uh, uh, many of the classification systems that, that we've been talking about, is, that's one sort of connection. You know, the wider library had, when, when it opened, as many libraries did at the time, unique classification system, unique to that library, mm -hmm. in which, you know, there's there's a top-level designation for the Ottoman Empire and another top-level designation for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And and while those entities no longer exist, that those connections among <laughs> the books that were put into the library yeah. at the time tells us something yeah. about that time as well. Yeah. And what people cared about, what yeah. the priorities yeah. were. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's part of the record, too. And there are ways of preserving that. Um, uh, but, but I think we need to pay attention to that as well. That it's not just about how we take these objects and resort them, however we want to resort them for, for a search at the moment, but how we preserve those, those moments of interest, born as they are out of contingency, out of biography, out of education. Um, how, do those, how do those moments of interest that connect things to each other uh, be, become part of this, become part of the network? And there has to be ease of use. Uh, before I call him Ben, I, I will, and Alexa knows the story, but she's at the medical school. In the last week, I've had two people, I mean, I'm a little tiny place on Cape Cod. I've had two people from Harvard, one asking for access to all of our electronic journals because it's too hard to use the Harvard system and park and all of those kinds of things. So it's ease of use. And the second one is because we have all the journals that they want because they're working on a special little credit. And you know, you wouldn't have those in a marine science library, and we do. So you know, there, there's ease of use and there's collections that are different around in, in the areas. Ben? Yeah, I, um, I'd like to you know, pick up on a couple of things that were said over here about, uh, about librarian. I'm a librarian at Boston College, and uh, the question of, of um, teaching and uh, teaching, if 
providing the tools to use the information. And, and the most important tool that I work with, and I tell the students I work with, the most important tool is them. And what we do is we sharpen them yeah. as tools to get information. And you know, as I comment earlier about the, that we're working, uh, you know, less interaction with uh, right. the librarian. I have more interaction than I've ever had before, but it's a very different kind of interaction. It's a much deeper interaction. Yeah. In a world where there's multiple taxonomies and multiple classification systems where everything's miscellaneous, it's the searcher, the user, that is the most important thing. And, and, and yes, they're much more capable of finding information than they ever were before, but it's still very, very confusing. And, and there's a lot that we can teach them. And, and, and you know, I think up, and, up until a lot of things are up in the boards, don't touch on that very much, that, that, are, that are teaching work, that are a role of, of building users of information is, is very important. And Teaching. It would be interesting to, to maybe talk about at some point um, what it is that librarians have to teach digital natives about navigating the net. Or we can talk about the digital native idea. Yeah, and I think somebody else brought this up too. And it really is a discussion that we could just have for hours and hours and hours. And it just basically kill the whole library discussion. But honestly, if I hear the term digital natives one more time, I'm more discreet. Because, and, and I, I don't mean that to be hostile. Um, but <laughs> Screaming can be very But I mean, I, I think when we, I mean, the kids now are more connected and they have a lot more options in terms of entertainment and everything else. But I think when we try to posit that there's a brand new breed, and I'm sure nobody in this room would do that, but I mean, I we do. all have seen. Sorry, I do. But please continue. Okay, okay. well. Hopefully, I won't construct a horrible straw man. Um, but what comes across is, I think there's more commonalities than there are differences. I mean, we've we've been in a mass communication culture since the dawn of radio. I mean, you know, I, I think you could really posit before radio was being a bigger break than you know than the distance between now and in 1965. But I mean, getting aside from that, I, I think. There is this notion, even in librarianship, well, the kids are all experts with the internet searching now, so we don't have anything to tell them. They're not. Unless you've watched them try it. Unless you've watched them try it. But, I mean, finding something is the easy part. And, and, but finding what you're looking for and being able to evaluate what you're finding and being able to synthesize it to something that will actually help you write that term paper or cure somebody's disease or figure out the history of the buggy whip in the late 19th century. Um, these are different kind of tasks. I think it does get back to the notion of education. Ken was just saying, I mean, that's, that's one of the things where it's not just getting the stuff and reading the stuff or hearing the stuff, but it's being able to, to use their own judgment and kind of synthesize things. And maybe that is a role that we're kind of just Over here. letting slip. Over here next. From where? I'm sorry? Frank Hacker from So I'm one of those people that basically don't use library searching now all that much because what I used to use Google and other stuff. Because at a certain point, I just sort of run up against the wall. You know, I can't access the papers on the library. But my point here would be the reason people use things like Google, the reason people use mm -hmm. things like the tradition tag and stuff like that, it's easy to use. It's easy to use. It's built into the browser to our degree, either, either directly with things like the Google search bar or indirectly you download a Firefox extension thing, which is kind of easy. So I guess my my sort of claim that I'm putting out here is if you want to make libraries relevant to end users in the future, mm -hmm. you need to get a way to get the library in the same position 
these are the browse in, in, in the end interface as Google and other things are today. And guess what? Okay, I, I work for an organization that does browse it, right? And so my challenge to you would be, how would you make, if you had control of the browser, let's say you did, how would you make libraries more accessible to users in the way you want to make them accessible? Not just in terms of you know, accessing a library catalog, but in terms of having the same importance to end users as Google does today, or, or letting people participate in librarianship the way you, know, you can participate in tagging position, or participating in the sort of one-to-one -one communication with, with librarians and people who can help you search, as opposed to you know, going out into the library and talking to the reference librarian and maybe calling up the, the reference there. That would be my challenge too, is, is if you had that capability, how would you use that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not worried much going how I'm calling it up service. I'm better of it. Even I always search, all the time search Google Wiki. For when I can offer like PhD, PhDs, and science, something, some new terms, they use very simple, brave explanations, so I understand, so do that. Yeah. So I think my, I went to lots of conferences to talk about it in the future of libraries, library, I think this week, why librarian couldn't do anything. You know, <laughs> just, yeah, unless uh, software. We get a uh, very good like, software uh, search engine like uh, Google had this kind. So we can use, we can do uh, for the library. Uh, li library. So, this, so sometimes you're frustrated. Only just uh, listening, study, uh, uh, prepare for the future, and then uh, training, uh, take some courses, IT, uh, something like that to, to prepare for the future. So this is uh, my thing, <laughs> yeah, not just, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's true. And that lady right in back of you, talk to her. She's going to change the world. She's taking over as the dean of uh, a library college there. Now, uh, let's get people's juices running. Let's move off to, you know, the library and talk about fair use. Let's talk about fair use and what it means to the library. And again, all those questions that they talked about this morning. Are you in charge of imposing fair use? I mean, when I first started in libraries, the only thing I ever saw on a Xerox machine was do not copy music. Oh, it's the only thing I ever saw on a Xerox. You know, it's against a lot of copy music. Um, I, I have a vision about fair use, copyright, and things like that. I, you know, Mickey Mouse aside, that you know drives our fair use and drives all of our copyright issues. I really think that we need to bifurcate what copyright is. I I love the fact that David writes books and he should sell them and he should get royalties for those kinds of things. But I think that anything in the scientists and the medical field and things like that should be outside of that copyright it, the world cannot look at this unless it is published in a $19,000 journal. I think we have to get away from those two things. We have to look at copyright differently. But when you draw the line. Yeah. Are you just I can draw, ask me. I'll put me in charge. Because I think there's a lot of scholarly information that I'd love to have access That's to, right. but it's done by Forrester Research, so they block it behind the subscription. But it's, it's actually valid scientific research. It just happens to be in the IT field. Uh, uh, my, my colleague Alexa will answer I this. Want, I just want to say that I, I can easily draw a line. Yeah. The line that I would draw 
has to do with whether the taxpayer, yeah, it's taxpayer dollars by have paid for yeah. the research. And if yeah. taxpayer dollars, your dollars, have paid for the research, then it should be openly available. Absolutely. It's a good line to draw. It's a, it's a good line. It's, it's a great line. Great start it's a great line. Happen. Does that necessarily include all work done at the university? That's right. Of course. Yes. Is that a wish list item that nobody disagrees <coughs> no, with or wants a, to speak to? It's a demand. It's a demand. <laughs> we are demanding this. this so a demand we are demanding this. So one of the ways of demanding this is to change. Okay, so the question is, who do you demand it of? And so at the CERN, the Super Collider Project at CERN has demanded that if you're going to publish research right. from the Super Collider, it has to be in an open access journal. Yes. Right. And because right. it's the, the most interesting, important physics research going on, they got their way. Right. Um, this is one of the places where the concept of university it's very if important. If you take university and yes. all the universities, we are more important than the super collider is. And is there some form of political action that we can take? The yes, provost, as the deans. As individuals, right. we certainly can. As individual yes. researchers, we certainly can. We can, we the can, uh, when we publish in a journal, yes. no matter whether it's an Elsevier journal or no matter what, what journal it is, we can use a Creative Commons license, for example, a certain kind of license that says, you can have copyright, you can do whatever it is that, that is, you can do whatever it is that you want with my article, including selling it, but I can do whatever it is that I want to do with my article as well, including putting it in an open access repository. And that's different from an open access journal. Right. So it's just making, making my work openly available. And if we did that collectively <coughs> as university, then we would have solved the problem. We will have. Well, let's do that. We should do that. <laughs> okay. That is a Stop. wish list. Does everyone agree with that? That's a wish list. Put that on the wish list. Oh, wait a minute. Here we go. I think there are two things. I, I, in principle, I think there are two things which is getting to be more, more difficult, for, especially for very significant projects, where there's the public funding versus private funding. Everything isn't so cleanly taxpayer funded. In. No, I'm saying we just draw the line. Yeah, we just draw the line. No, actually, I think she's making the point that even when it's partially publicly funded, there may also be a private entity that has an interest in that research. And that was the argument that was made when I was in the D.C. conference by various physical associations some of the other and older I mean, of the activities and the involvement that they have. Part of their model for supporting their activity, which is not profit, is to have the publication of the journal. Now, I'm giving you that perspective. It's not mine but I have heard it enough. I also know that if each individual faculty member goes to a publisher and says, I want a Creative Commons license, we had an example that made the exception yesterday of one of the more revered Harvard professors who was told, take that Science Commons license off, or we will pull your journal article, which they did. The so, journal pulled the, the journal pulled the article? Correct. Okay. That was made two weeks ago. Exactly. So as, they, as we talk about university, we be very clear it's not so individual what? against the entity, but that the university as a conceptual piece, as, and that you said deans and provosts. Yes. Yes, it's not because we have a tenure system where I have to publish. Therefore, I cannot necessarily assert my right unless I'm at Harvard. And even when I'm at Harvard, I have the ability to do it, but I will get pulled. And in your case, it's your own. And this is my case, they backed out at the very last minute. They didn't have a pillar for that argument. Right. <laughs> right. They, they said no very stridently for a moment. Yes, but you can do it. I have a number of people now. We have an amendment, and it's on our webpage, that we give to every single scientist when they publish uh, to attach. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But, but we're eating away, we're eating away, we're eating away. 
And what we do is I do a very scientific search every week on 02543. That's the zip code in Witzel. And I figure if we find anything with that zip code on it, it belongs to us. It's ours. <laughs> and what we do is we send a congratulatory message <laughs> to the scientists saying, congratulations, your paper has been published. We are putting it in our institutional repository because you published in a, a gold journal, a green journal, or we can put it in, in six months because it's embargoed. Or we can't because you publish in something that won't let you. So their policy is give us your last PDF. We put that in there. We give it a DOI so that people, so it's always resolvable. It's not the DOI the publisher has. It's the DOI we have. And they're happy. Plus, we plaster them all over the front page of the library homepage. And now they get so they watch it to see who's publishing that week. And if we miss them, they call us and say, hey. You missed us. Get me on the board. And and so you gotta be proactive out there. And, and and in doing that, you're educating them towards open access. And then we put usually a tagline in for the latest research that if you publish in open access, your possibility of being cited seven hundred and thirty thousand times, you know, goes up a hundred percent. Whereas if you publish in a ten thousand dollar journal, you're gonna be read by seven people. What do you want? So an adjunct to this issue is yeah. what, can, what can be done by librarians or libraries, if anything, in order to not only uh, help move things into open access repositories, for example, but also to fulfill the other, to disintermediate the, uh, the journals, and right. by part by disaggregating the content. Journals provide other functions. Uh, they do. Prestige. Uh, 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 people can find stuff. Review. So what else can the librarians do in order to get get those other functions of the journals out of the journals and into open access. Okay. In mid cases. There is a whole body, it's called in communication, that is not scientific, medical, not right. in journals. It's a very important role that university press publishes, not the Elseviers, not signing That's right. That has played in for years in terms of looking over the entire range of what's published, selecting, vetting, having peer review, and then presenting it. Is that a role that's obsolete? That you know it's being supplanted by collaborative wiki-type endeavors? Is it one that librarians can take over, or is it one that the selection, editing, vetting, the money it takes to do that? Is there a new role for that in the university? Casey, and then Alexa. No, no, I was just making sure. Oh, that she had finished. <coughs> I gave her a chance to finish. Oh, okay, sorry. Casey? So part of the question here is, what is the shape of knowledge? 10, 20 years from now, how does that affect libraries? And part of what we're seeing is, as the economics for publishers change, are we talking about libraries becoming, taking on a little bit of that role, encouraging further disintermediation, but also taking on the parts that publishers have done that you need some sort of organized entity to perform? Not that I know exactly what they are, but if we're spending a lot of our time encouraging open access publication, why not build the infrastructure, as we have in some cases, to, to support that, you know, the publishers who don't see the economic incentive for it. And then, as was nailed out at the end of the comment a moment ago, um, really it's, it's the peer review that matters. And so we build, you know, how, do we, how do we build peer review in the internet beyond the link analysis that Google does? Um, and that's sort of well, whether you can well, even call that peer because it's your, it's you know, it's a machine, that's which, cool. which, as you're saying, machines can have a role in. Uh, no, Google is Google well, is measuring the links that people have made. 
No, 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 it's a machine that's assessing that based on some algorithm. That's all I'm saying. Each link represents a certain amount of value. I'm not going to defend link rank over academic peer review, but it is it, it is a lot better than I think. Yeah, good. Yeah. I'm, I'm from Warner Brothers, which is a little bit far afield from some of this, but I'm interested in learning about copyright views of this community. And um, the, the proposal was made, you know, make science, science free of copyright. It sounds like what you're proposing would be require a legislative change. Um, and it's in Congress right now. It's in Congress now. The question that I would pose, um, looking at it from the point of view of private businesses, is that, and I might say this if I were a representative in Congress to people proposing this, is listening to you, it's not clear why you need a change in copyright uh, and, and this is what I mean by that, and we interesting to discuss. Um, if, in fact, uh, a private business severe whatever's in this field, it's not one of others, um, has a particular service to offer. Maybe they aggregate peer reviewers, or maybe they have a very pretty, expensive paper, or whatever the value added, trivial or not, that they're contributing. And they come in as a private business and say to people, publish in our journal. We're a private business, we're investing in doing that. It's not clear that the right of those people to be in that business, which essentially requires copyright protection function, should be taken away to me by the legal system. There's nothing wrong with the sort of marketplace and the marketplace of ideas and changing technology, rendering that publisher and distributor and what the value of is totally obsolete. There are many, many businesses that have become obsolete sometimes mm -hmm. very quickly. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so, um, but on the other hand, if I want to start a business, and the, the, uh, the other side of that issue that I just want to put on the table for thought is that our argument effect, let's suppose I'm a professor, and I you know, earn my living teaching, and I want to write a book, and David has done, and uh, or an article. Uh, should I have the choice of publishing it in that private business-driven journal with whatever value added I think it has? Or are we saying that, in effect, the law would change and say that, or is it a university rule that would change? It would say, if you are a professor at Harvard, which is partly funded, and your research is partly funded, you, and I pose this as a question, mm -hmm. certainly the answer, you have made a choice, maybe you have, that whatever you do must be dedicated to the public. You know, if you want to write a novel, you know, we all know that copyright has the notion of works for hire being in the scope of your employment. So if I'm a biologist and I'm federally funded research and I'm going to write an article, I'm a work for hire for the public, so to speak. If I want to write a mystery novel, I think I'm sensing people would have a different view of my rights. So are we saying, and by what rule, created by whom, mm -hmm. that if you are choosing to write what? a book or an article, mm -hmm. ever, you must do it for free. So but the problem is, I'm, I'm sorry, but the, this, this is a big hobby course, and I'll, I'll try to shut it very quickly. Um, the, 
the issue is is that the market does not work. You know, if, if I decide to to buy the next Spice Girls album, I mean, I'm making a choice. I mean, there's not a intermediary intermediary there. What's happening with scholarly publication is that our scholars rely upon these journals, but they don't pay for them. So they don't realize that it costs thirty thousand dollars a year for brain research. We're paying the tax, and so that's why you see these margins get so out of whack because it's not a fully functioning market. The other side of that is that if I have a chance to publish in Nature, I publish in Nature. You know, there, there, is, there is no choice for me because journals are not substitutable goods. So you have a publisher that builds a brand, and they, they do expend a certain amount of money building a brand, but that brand has authority around it that becomes a sort of autonomous authority-granting entity. You publish an article in, in Nature, that means you're a good scientist that nobody really has any control over. Which again means there's a distortion in the market because they can set the terms. I mean, nobody, there's not a, lot, a science library in the world or most general purpose I, libraries that are not going to subscribe to nature. I think what you're dancing around is, and this, you have competition. Warner Brothers has competition. Uh, what's happened in the scientific journal publication world is, I'll have to shoot you all, monopolies. And the only place if you're a neuroscientist that you're going to publish is in the neuroscience journals. That's it. And they're owned by one company. And the only place that you're going to publish, you know, if you want it now and happening is nature of science. We have monopolies now in that area. Um, I can't say that out loud, so I didn't. But that is the problem that we are facing here. And so the price of journals in the last five years has gone up 268%. Yeah, hello. I mean, come on. I mean, that's the craziness about this kind of thing. So, it's you know, we want competition. If there was more competition, you know, it wouldn't have driven the libraries to the wall to be fighting back like this. Okay. Go ahead. I have a couple of responses. Um, you were saying what are the perspectives of this group on Congress? Um, the first I would say is that there are two full purposes, and I think the legislation before Congress now is about balance. Um, because copyright mm -hmm. is about balance. I think your comment and the comment that you just left yeah. is that there isn't that balance because no one wants to get rid of capitalism or no. deprive anyone of the right to start a business. At the same time, there has to be a balance because the public paid for this, but the public can't get access to this. Right. So the reason the law is there is not to supplant or to replace the better publication natures of this planet. However, at the same time, it is to provide seemingly a less quality copy, which does not have the bells and whistles, which will always attract some, but that will at the same time make the information available, whether it's done in a really nice way. I mean, I always think of the Supreme Court decisions. You can get them in life if you can afford it, but you can get them free. So it doesn't affect Lexus. It's not affected their model. It's not that there mm -hmm. aren't people making money off of seemingly what should be free information. At the same time, however, right now, the information is being held hostage. Right. And it was paid for by a public entity whose purpose is to serve the common. The common is not being served. What's being served are the capitalist corporate entities. We need not to take that away, but to create a balance. Go. Uh, I'm on the left. My name is Tom Rubin. I work at Microsoft, which is not really involved in this particular issue, but I'm an intellectual property lawyer. And just a couple of observations that are really hanging from uh, some of the things that came up yesterday. 
One is, um, I think it would be important to think about the role of the university library also in the context of the broader university, because among the things that, that, that we've heard is the fact that there are parts of this university that make upwards of more than $100 million a year on essentially licensing their copyrighted content and articles. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how that fully gets reconciled, but I think that that's an important consideration for the library community. The other is, um, if the measure is public funding, um, there's public funding, you know, not only of articles and journals, but indeed of medical research that you know, ends up in the hands of, of, of pharmaceutical companies that, you know, and, and then use those. And so I'm just thinking that a, I, I think that the issue is broader and more complex right. and more unified yeah. intellectual property theory across the university and even across intellectual property disciplines is almost needed rather than just targeting, you know, or at least targeting this, this issue in that broader context. And I would agree, worldwide. but again, the whole situation of university as an entity that creates or profits is a confusing element because yes, they're doing both. They're both right. saying we have this role, we have that role. Dayton, that was a perfect example of the Harvard School yeah. uh, Dean. Uh, the other though is, and you actually mentioned earlier, there are ways to provide access for the public and not to necessarily harm the entity is doing it for example, we said we delay a year, we delay two years. Um, how long is scientific information truly important? Yeah. And why does JSTOR exist if all information were equally important? And you know as well as I do, length of time something is really of value so short. So we're not going to necessarily come to an agreement, but where there are ways to mitigate your concern, that's still achievable. One more question and then we're going to move on to our wrap-up over here. In this monopoly model. I didn't say that. <laughs> I know. In, in the word we didn't say model, I think that um, we also have to look at our role of university outside the university because it's very hard for me to cry for us with our $26 billion endowment when the prices of things are going up for us. We handle it. I'm worried about Jasmine. I'm sorry. Jasmine. Uh, um, your what happens to the people in your community and your public library where we do have some power at the university and um, last night when Nicholas Negroponte was talking about um, one, one laptop per child he posited a model for the future commercial success of this, which is you purchase two, you get one. So that anyone who wants to make money of this is buying one for whatever their commercial purposes are and putting one in the hands of a child who has no money. And with all the power the university has, why can't we say, we'll buy your journal, we're going to pay for one and we're going to get two, and the Vermont Public Library is going to get one when we get one, and I'd love to have that on the wish list, because I think where we could say, you know, we demand more open access, we're always going to be in conflict with the market model. So as, as we're waiting for things to change in the way that some people would like to see them change um, to become uh, more open access, we also have to deal with them the way they are. So why don't we bring our power to bear and just say, you know, we'll purchase, but you're going to also give for free the way that um, Harvard real estate often has to provide um, housing for low-income people when we decide to take um, property for Harvard. 
And does that work? It, somewhat. I mean, we're, we're I don't good. know. I mean, I'm literally just asking. We've got two people who haven't spoken, so quick. One, and then the lady with the wonderful stripe on. I would also like to see us be much more aggressive about protecting fair use at the moment someone's standing in front of us. I'm sure I'm not the only person who works in a library who has no idea what I can tell people they can and cannot do. And I think that we artificially, we, we tend to artificially restrict what we commit people to do. And I'd like us to be less cautious about that. Uh, two things. One, I work at Rutgers University in Newark, and one thing about our licenses is anybody who comes into one of our libraries and uses our public access terminals can use any of our databases. That's just something we pay experts for. The University of Washington was like that as well. And, you know, so except for very few databases, I can tell anybody who come in here and you can use, you can use what we have. And the second thing I'm just going to say about the open access, having heard the conference about this last week, is when we talk about the role libraries can play, can we do it? Can we do a good job at doing some of what the public is going to do it? And the other question is, are we going to keep doing it? Because I was at a conference where a publisher and a librarian nearly got into a fist fight on a panel. And the point that the publisher made that I thought was invalid was that he's going to come up with a model to serve yeah, so. And keeps us in business at yeah. the same time as it yeah. keeps our publishers in business. We do have 10 minutes to come All right, up with. We've got to come up with. with no, 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 spectacular point if they start loading you know articles and chapters and things like that for that 99 cents download you know whew, I mean that is just an amazing model uh, people people will I mean it's you know like I always said to Elsevier 
why don't you give us the digital files and for five cents, we'll give you back five cents every time they Xerox it. This is back in 1985. I mean, you know, a million nickels will make you a lot more money than someone coming in and you're afraid that they're Xeroxing it out of the paper that you don't know about. And that's the same kind of model, that 99 cents is fabulous. 30 seconds, real quick. Go. Product time deliverance equals success. We have people who are creating content. They're in the product business. Right. We have people who are delivering content. They're in the delivery business. Right. There's a tendency of those who are in the delivery business to want to get part into the product business by being licensed to be the only ones to deliver. Of course, the ones that are creating the product want to gain some notoriety and they want to have some control over the delivery. Just to cut it really simple, some, a way to look at it. Product, delivery. They're interfering, they're competing with each other. And the other question up for today is, are libraries service businesses? Are we just service? Are we service? Yeah, not for today. Okay, not for today. So, we um, are wrapping up at 12.45. It's uh, 12.25. Is this time gone by really quickly? Nobody's been sitting there bored, I hope. Um, the one thing that seems... Okay, that was actually going to be my question, whether the publicly funded information was going to be the same as number one or whether it was going to be its own number two. Is this okay with number one? What we want to do is think about other things we can do from within the university, potentially. Uh, things that are outside helpers, and it seems like we have some representatives from those places here, but also, you know, we all work with those people. Um, and then also the steps part, which we're going to have to make David make up on his own if we don't come up with any. <laughs> Most of the steps will involve buying copies of everything's miscellaneous. So. <laughs> <laughs> Figuring out what the dots mean. Um, so we'll want to we'll want to think of a couple ideas of that. I've written down what I thought some of the meta topics were that we talked about. The role of the library, I think, is really important in its own right, but doesn't need to necessarily be wish-listy unless we really feel like identifying the role of the library is something that university needs to do for libraries, which I have very mixed feelings about personally, but it doesn't really matter what I think in this, in this instance. So I guess what I'd like to do is, especially for people who haven't spoken yet, um, but people who maybe have just been like sitting and waiting the whole time, um, Throwing out a couple, you know, we got five minutes maybe, brainstorming a couple wish list ideas and seeing if we can coalesce on them, and then spending the last like five or ten minutes after that thinking if there's concrete steps that we can actually go back home and do something. Write a letter, do a thing, talk to somebody, make a friend with somebody who can help you with your thing. Because uh, where I am, it's all about like talking to the meter man out when he comes to, that gets your electricity and fixed. And so, and Vermont. They were bought by Unilever. Oh, that's right. The people who make them fast. Uh, but yeah, so. Um, I'll throw something controversial out. How about uh, government regulation of all of the commercial areas and layers of the internet? So let's start regulating Google, which is accumulating all of your information. It's going to completely change your library classification system for commercial interests in AdSense and AdWords. I'm really surprised we haven't actually spent almost any time talking about so Google today. Um, I'm pleasantly surprised most of the time, but I do think it's the 800-pound elephant gorilla. I'm mixing my metaphors. Um, in the room, because really, when we're going into our libraries, even where I am, we're going into our libraries and we're getting on our library computers that the Gates Foundation provided us, so we're going and getting on our PCs 
and we're searching Google a lot of the time. Uh, I mean, we don't have online catalogs where I am, so Google is the default where I go to get my information. Um, so, can I ask a different uh, question I, about can Google? Can I finish up? Oh, sure. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and let's maybe also regulate the carriers in terms of uh, how they would like to regulate Google in terms of net neutrality. The carriers meaning the people creating the network. Um, like Verizon. Yeah. Let's, let's stop discriminatory um, attempts to re regulate just higher education networks and not commodity networks because surely libraries and universities have so much more in common from a not-for-profit perspective than any of these others and there are numerous attempts to regulate educational ISVs where there's no or little attention in place on commercial ISV regulation, say in terms of technological measures that would uh, attract data going back and forth, if only for peer-to-peer. -peer. No one's talking about doing that on Verizon and AT&T, but they're certainly going to be talking about it next week, once again, in Congress. And then finally, going back to copyright, let's uh, talk about, if not rebalancing, as Kim has suggested, a copyright law. If we can't do it that way, then let's regulate the content industry in such a way that the same effect. <coughs> Good bombs. Bomb thrower. I love her. <laughs> Interesting. Did you have a, a corollary um, question? Yeah, which, I mean, I, I uh, personally, I love the idea of regulating the carriers, which is, well, I'm assuming we're talking about what's sometimes called net neutrality. Yeah. Um, so, but two quick comments. One is, I, mean, I really hate the idea of regulating Google, and I would turn that around and say, what is it that libraries can do in order to make Google better at it at its job? And, and I would respond by saying, why do we want Google to be the one who has all the information and all the control? Well, so this is one of the central questions, is do we think libraries succeed by being the places where people go, or do we uh, think libraries succeed, and I'm sorry, this is probably the services question again, do we think libraries yeah. succeed by going where people are? Is that privacy you're talking about, in a way? My goodness, I think that's it. Anything from privacy to, to, to you know the most extreme uh, Orwellian kinds of imaginations that we all read in the seventh grade. And then does that go on which list or does that go on steps regulation? Well, I'm trying to think. How do you like having the child? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, are, we, are these going to be presented as consensus? No, not, not, not until they're consensus, yeah. or at least uh, No, 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 no. Because I, I think, of the room, I think. I would think that, uh, leaving aside corporate interests, that a lot of people in the Berkman Center would be concerned about government regulation of stuff on the internet for a lot of reasons. Yeah, there's a lot, I, I don't deny that. So we, I assume we're going to go for sense of the room uh, uh, on the wish list stuff? Yeah. Yeah, let, let me throw one more bomb out to the gentleman from Microsoft. How come we didn't have regulation of all the security uh, problems that Microsoft software has caused higher education loan billions of dollars to break? We, didn't have, we have no regulation of billions of dollars to break. You want insurance as opposed to yeah. regulation. So I know right. yeah. it raises a whole host of problems about relationships well, of government and free market. I'm only suggesting that the well, let's get more out and then we'll of government regulation all of these areas of the internet is something that no one ever talks about. And while it might not be a solution, at least it needs to be considered. Unless you don't consider our time worth anything. 
in, in a lot of cases, we deal with that in the public libraries, where it's just effort, not necessarily even cash for us. For you, it's probably we, we both. We've done a lot more in higher education than here to take care of all the security problems that the largest producer of the software that we use caused in terms of security. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to use up the valuable time to respond. Yeah, I Focused on. Sounds like the two of you either should have yeah, one yeah. or definitely not have one. <laughs> 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 you were here, I thought it would be one of the. I thought you'd say, take it out. So can, we, can we, in brainstorming mode, just try to generate more things for the wish list and then come back quickly? And I think we we'll get to a sense of the room on some of these pretty, pretty easily. Some of them, anyway. Yes, I, I think it's just since we are kind of a wrap up session, I would mean, just introduce a whole huge. Okay. I went straight to the wish list. And we're going to put Dave up in front of the crowd there. He's going to have to put expound on these things and this and that. I, I, I think it's too late in the this. I mean, we've had a great discussion about this a lot earlier. Um, so I want to give a sense of the practice of librarians here. Um, do we think that information technologies, just you know, cast that net um, broadly, um, have they created, um, there are some efficiencies, so they've helped you out with searching and stuff. Um, there's some less work there, but they've also, you've got all these more resources that you have to manage. Um, you have to teach yourself how to be an IT person, you have to teach these new technologies. Um, so has it, on a balance, has it created more work, or is there um, effort saving there? And if, it, if, if the balance of it is that it created new work, uh, there's more responsibilities to put on you, um, for the outside wish list, um, could you take that argument to your funding providers and say these are our new goals. Um, we do need new new funding for these things. Um, so basically, more funding justified for because of your new goals. Um, you can well, you're all you're always going to say we don't have enough funds. But yeah. you say because of our new roles. Kathy, can we adopt uh, brainstorming rules, yeah. which are, if it's suggested, it goes up, and we can always take it off later? Okay, if it's suggested, it goes up. Okay. And then we'll pair okay. it down. One area around which it seemed like a, a wish list kind of point was, was converging was a question of what libraries can do about open access and and uh, with, a, with a view in mind to maybe an old-fashioned notion of public trust. And I think what Wendy had to say about one possibility for uh, uh, library sharing access, as Rutgers is already doing, that's one model. What Kathy talked about in terms of uh, incentivizing uh, um, the, the choice uh, on a researcher's part for open access publishing is another. But is there a wish list item here in this question? Uh, you know, what, what do libraries do to uh, promote open access? Is this something that, that the, the community, the libraries agrees the community is, is, is a good? Something for the wish list, sir? Yes, I do. Oh, well, um, we just want to promote My wish list is the following. Um, the real case to um, someone hear about these things and um, address this, um, this counterpoint to some of the issues that you might be talking about in the space conference. And um, of course, as you know, these addressing the last day and next week are covered. And um, another wish list is um, perhaps take an example of this last day address next week. This is a set of such share with some of the here. 
easier if our stuff were more usable too. I lump usability as the far end of standards really if we didn't have to retrain to learn every new one of these tools if there were some standards and usability built into it that would also make our job somewhat easier. Absolutely. I think getting back to what um, the gentleman from the Brown perspective <coughs> said about how you know how if if library if libraries had control of the browser what, what would we do with that control? And the question is not only how how does the web gain access to what's in library catalogs, but how does that stuff in the library catalogs gain access to the web? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you build more a richer and more robust network, turning the library, the stuff in the library, digital resources, which is almost all that we've talked about here, digital resources, uh, but not only digital resources, but also books. How do they become part of the network? Right. And I think the, the answer is not just by taking pictures of them, but 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 how do the how do the um, the enormous value that libraries have built by cataloging these things? How does that become part of the picture? Not the not the alternative model to Google, but how does it talk to Google? Yeah, I think and I think that that's an important point. When I think about how library catalogs talk to each other, we say, oh, we can see for anything. We have all of these kinds of things. But if you, if you look at the standard layout of a mock record, that's what we call our metadata mock records. A mock record does not any longer satisfy what people really need to find things. I mean, it is, talk about the copyright law being outdated. Mark is completely outdated, and we need to do something about that. That's what libraries can do. That should be, you know, people should think about that. Put it on the wish list. You're right. Can I have my own wish? Revamp mock. <laughs> okay. Revamp it or get rid of it? Yeah, replace it. Replace Revamp it. it! I like that. Revamp metadata. It. It's lovely. Huh? Reinvent. Reconceptualize. Re we don't have time to wordsmith. So, my wish list that follows along with a lot of these things is we are, what, 12 more, I think 
2004 numbers were a $12 billion industry, libraries, and can we point to where we're measuring our uh, our R&D spending? There's, you know, there's little projects here and there, and over the past couple of years, lots more projects, but there's very little real money being spent on R&D, and yet we're handling these really great vast amounts of information and, and wondering why other companies in the commercial sector, which are investing in R&D, why are, why are they displacing us in terms of how you access information? I think my wish list for libraries is let's stop reacting to things, let's stop waiting for, for somebody to show us what the new shape of information knowledge is in the future. Let's go ahead and figure it out. Let's, let's answer the question of what our metadata should look like, what are, how to build systems that are easier to use. Let's spend some money on that. We're similar to that. I think one thing that libraries have been good at for a long time now is making these things durable. And I don't think that the market has been as good at that so far. And that's something that I think libraries need to, to leverage, that uh, products the library is making, the value that it's adding to the information experience, a lot of that has to do with making these things accessible, not just now, but in the future. And, and that's a place where I think libraries really need to continue to be um, an advocate as a community, market force, what have you. Five minutes, maybe we should win so out. Quick question, do, do libraries have a collective voice is, that, that works really well? Yes and no. collective voice, but they do have, they have some very powerful, strong organizations that have been limperist in years past. Because often they represent the vendors in addition to the libraries. Yeah. And, and you know, they have this synergies, but, but not really. So they can't advocate effectively for each of research libraries right. taking a stand on open access before oh, really? any of the rest yeah. of us. That's right, Spark. Spark was fabulous. And to get to R&D, and, and maybe Alexa can just remind me, in R&D, I mean, there is one library in, in America that spends more money on R&D than we probably spend on anything else, and that's the National Library of Medicine at the L Hill Center, and that's billions, millions, 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 almost billions, but it's a lot of money in R&D. Okay, let's, so let's, march, through let's the, uh, march through this, guys, because David has to present this this afternoon. And he doesn't use libraries, so we have to educate him in the next five minutes. I still call them libraries. So. Libraries. Okay, so do you want to walk us through these? No, you can do it, because you have to do it. So we have a number of wish list items. We are not going to end up with three dream steps. That's not going to happen. Sorry. No. Which is okay, David. Uh, which makes us all look bad. Uh, no. Um, and I, okay, so, just you actually, David. <laughs> so the first item on the wish list is, uh, so I'm going to ask for basically a show of hands. Uh, do you think this is one of the top three? It's going to be a question. Um, demand or encourage open access to uh, what is our work, our publicly funded work. Does that go on the wish list? Hands up if it does. I'm going to say, yeah. Okay? Good one. So, we'll see. Okay, so. Um, next is promo 
open access by so I'm not the person doing this because I can't read. You can't because it, yeah. that was what you were talking about. Yeah, what are the promotion what, of open access? By yeah. yeah. What are the ways in which open access can be promoted since libraries are not? And we're talking. The number one seemed to me primarily about researchers saying, "I want to be in an open access right. journal." What do, What do libraries do to, to make that uh, to make that? Valuable? How do? Can we uh, combine that? Yeah. You could. Yeah. That's a good one. Okay. And down there was the young gentleman in the back, Bill Gates, addressed the wish list uh, here. Uh, from, from this conference. Iraq? Uh, that's the 07. This is okay, so Gates is coming. We give him the wish list and we say, Bill, address this. Mr. Gates. You have to find what the wish list is first. Well, well we have yeah, to. Yeah, once we have it. Show of hands. Is this a top three <laughs> wish list item? Is this a top three wish list item? Hands up if you think it is. You gotta raise your hand, sir. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay. I'm gonna say this probably not to make it on the list. Okay. Um, uh, Outside, oh, regulate, regulate the, uh, we should divide the thing, regulate uh, Google in particular? No, just regulate commercial areas of the internet. Yeah. Does it dilute it too much to say um, advocate for net neutrality? Is that is that too dilute? Um, I want to separate those as they are here. Okay. That's uh, carriers. So uh, regulate the commercial areas. Uh, hands up if it's a top three. What does that mean? Um, and unfortunately, it came up late, so we we're, we're, didn't have time to thresh through it. Regulate carriers, which I'm taking as a net neutrality thing. Is this a top three a demanding matter of advocating for a top three official <coughs> item? I think in the general sense. Oh, we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Do, do people know what net neutrality yeah, is? Do they discuss it? We didn't really discuss it, and we're not going to. Um, the errors in software were taken offline. Um, Advocate for rebalancing or balancing of copyright. Uh, important enough for the top, uh, top three wish list. That's, I think. Striking the copyright balance, really. Yeah. Uh, striking the copyright. Uh, but okay. so that looked like that was one of. <laughs> would it be more say which direction you want that balance to go in because we don't know where the center is? Right. Um, the, the proposal was that the balance favors the rights holders at the moment. That's how I understood it. If you disagree, let me know. And who are the rights holders? How about, how about we People who publish content. How about we said? Which is the authors or the deliverers? The publishers? The publishers, not the authors. So the deliverers. In your terms, yes. The deliverers. Okay. How about back to balancing to promote useful arts and sciences? Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. In your face. <laughs> you, might, you might have to explain that somewhere. Okay, that's fine. Okay, uh, finding, oh, funding. Funding for new <laughs> IT roles. A top yes. three? Raise your hand if you think that's... <laughs> Who's against money? <laughs> Who's against uh, money? Apparently, okay. Um, open, oh, supporting, advocating for open uh, document or open standards. Uh, Rick, top three open standards. This looks to me like the dunk up. Okay, one more. That looks to me like it's about on the same level as balanced copyright. See, on the same level of support. Dave, can we go back? I mean, I, I didn't jump in when he talked about that, but I, but I think that we're actually out of time. We're out of time. <laughs> I think that it's not funding for IT roles. It's funding for moving in the informatics direction of libraries. Rephrase that way. Yes. Top three, raise your hand. Funding for 
moving to informatics. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Well, so we're going to have six, and they're just not going to be divided up. Um, replace Mark. Top three. Raise your hands. Not enough time. To not enough time. Okay. So the winners are uh, open access to our works so with promote and fund. Uh, not that one. Uh, balance copy. I'm being short, but balance copyright. Uh, support standards, fund informatics, and that's it. Are we okay with that? Anybody feel betrayed, cheated? You didn't vote for invested money. You're right. Well, that's uh, is that part of the funding for that, IT? That was so several item. Yeah. Uh, top three uh, invest in R and D. Can we roll that into the informatics thing? Yes. 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 Okay. yes. Okay. yes. So, in that case, we're pretty much done. Okay. Um, Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.